Welcome to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We are back, and uh, we have once again the good fortune of being with Mr. Jan Barry, uh, journalist, uh, retired now, but journalist for the Bergen Record, who was very pivotal in the bringing to uh, the forefront uh, many of these stories. In fact, if Jan wasn't doing what he was doing, there's a good chance that there might never have been a Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead, because that was a lot of what found its way into Chuck's book. So we get a chance to speak a little bit more today with uh, Jan Barry and uh, obviously with Dr. Chuck Stead about this very important story and very important work. Let me turn it over now to Dr. Chuck. Thank you, Joe. We've been talking about the film Man v. Ford and some of the consequences of what happens when uh, a story is told by others, in this case, an HBO crew and lawyers from various firms you're going to hear about. And we're going to go a little further into that. Now, to understand the weakness in the film, it may be best to look back a year earlier to the publication of a New Yorker magazine article by Ben McGrath in the March 1st, 2010 issue of the New Yorker. McGrath featured a story about the killing of Amo Mann. This had happened on April 1st, 2006, and culminated in the summer of 2009 with a not guilty verdict for the park ranger who had pulled the trigger on Amol Mann's life. I introduced Ben McGrath to Tribal Chief Dwayne Perry in the summer of 2007. McGrath had met me to discuss his proposed assignment, so I took him to meet the chief, essentially to talk over his access to the community. We drove through the village of Hilburn, and just past 6th Street, we encountered the chief driving in the other direction. We stopped our cars and held an informal council right there in the road, eventually joined by others who came along in a pickup truck. Now, Chief Perry took to McGrath. McGrath, is a, he's a charming man. He's extremely polite. We then went back to the chief's home on Boulder Avenue, where Ben was treated to a lesson in the long history of the Ramapos and how they've experienced such from writers, academics, filmmakers, and the like. By the time we left, Ben was fairly well established as a welcome guest in the community, but there was a string attached. Chief Perry said, You can come, you can learn, and you can write about us. But none of that Jackson White crap. You understand, we've heard that for too many years. This, of course, was in reference to the racist mythology that David Cohen had referenced in his book, Ramapo Mountain People. He had repeated John Storm's sexist, racist fable written back in the 1930s. And a few years later, when the McGrath article came to print, it was deeply researched, and it might have emerged as something the Ramapos could have been proud of, accepting the sections on the Jackson Whites, which included a reference to a New Yorker journalist, George Weller's 1938 piece in the magazine entitled The Jackson Whites. Now, I was at a sportsman trade show on behalf of the New York State Department of Health Hudson River Fish Advisory Program when Ben McGrath called me. The article had just been released, and already he was receiving angry calls from Ramapos he had interviewed. He was stunned as he believed the framing of the discriminatory term was placed in proper context. And I reminded him that they didn't want to see it in print at all, regardless of the idea of context. 
McGrath told me that his editors insisted, as they believed this was an important part of the story, that the racism inherent in the slang informs the setting and precondition of the park ranger's behavior on that fateful day. (sighs) I listened to his frustration on the phone, and I sympathized. But I knew that the New Yorker, He was up against a well-institutionalized stigmatization as well as low expectations on the part of the Ramapos. They had allowed him into the community, but in all likelihood he was expected to fail, expected to exploit, as that's simply his way of being. To be sure, Ben at no time struck me as exploitive or deceptive. He is a genuine, well-meaning journalist, But the neoliberal New Yorker, with its urbane sensibility, is not the stuff of local storytelling. In order to convey a story, the New Yorker must come to possess it. When the editors insisted on the trivial folk history perpetuated by a colonizing mentality, regardless of its footnote in the narrative, they came to possess the story. Over the wishes of the Ramapos, who were in fact the story. Even the accompanying color illustration depicts an officer up against what appears to be ruthless renegades. Hmm. So much for the press. As indicated in earlier episodes in the series, the Ramapos have a long history of being interpreted by another's agenda. Like many indigenous residents on this continent, they have been identified as an occupied people living among colonial conquerors. It is in this respect, regardless of the best intentions on the part of a cool, urbane, intellectual society emanating from the New Yorker, that the Ramapos would be cast in a predetermined setting of lost children of Appalachia, clearly in need of guidance. This lost and needy classification attracts a great many progressives, who come armed also with the best of intentions, and are capable of doing the greatest of harm. Lydia Coates, a lawyer who offers the tribe pro bono work, has stated that the Ramapos need a blueprint. They need a schematic. Hmm. In order to coexist, that is, with white society. It is this kind of condescending goodwill thrust upon the people with ingratiating cheer that suffocates the community and reframes their story. But Ms. Coates is not alone in this attitude. She is joined by academics of all stripes, as well as social workers, healthcare professionals, and politicians, and perhaps the worst of the lot, college professors, armed with their theories and eager to parade their student interns into the community for a field trip. And the Ramapos, they continue to open their doors for such inspection. All in the spirit of keeping the story alive. But much of this exposure, in fact, robs them of their story, interprets it, and offers back something that has been denatured. What is outstanding in Man v. Ford? What strikes the viewer are the personal interviews and Vivian Milligan's old home movies of children, many of them now past, playing around in Ringwood. There is unadulterated history, a glimpse into a charming world, unaware that their legacy was carcinogenic exposure. Under the direction of Maro Chermoff and Micah Fink, the film offers a beautiful portrayal of the Ramapo turtle community, a very rural setting in which the people find comfort in their seclusion. As clan mother Vivian Milligan's voice tells us, the woods, they have been our lives. And then we meet Bob Spiegel, of Edison Wetlands, 
of New Jersey. This is an advocacy association. He talks about the noxious mixture of compounds in the hardened paint sludge as he cracks open a sizable chunk. Although he is wearing rubber gloves to protect his hands, the very compounds he just referenced have just been released in his presence. In fact, in later footage, after breaking another sludge cake open with a hammer and chisel, Spiegel complains of the strong odor that has been released. This off-gassing potential, which was denied by Ford, as they claimed solvents and acids theoretically would have burned off early in the paint's life, lingers deep in the sludge as a result of the plasticizer DEHP, which traps a virtual cocktail of chemicals in the paint. Mr. Spiegel's advocacy was an opportunity missed to drop in some science on the legitimate hazard of contact with this substance. And then next, we are treated to community leader Wayne Mann, whose on-camera presence is riveting in the fashion that only a true warrior can be. He walks about in the Ramapo powwow, chatting with folks and watching the dancers, a figure of strength among his people. And we meet the lead attorney for the plaintiffs, in the cases cited as Man v. Ford. Vicki Gilliam, the subject of the biography that pops up later in the film. Ms. Gilliam tells us that the case was titled Man v. Ford as a tribute to Wayne Mann's work. She calls him a voice of the voiceless. You remember that remark, of the voiceless. We'll talk about it later. In the film, Gilliam clearly emerges as the pursuer of truth and defender of the downtrodden, which makes her sudden departure from the case even more curious. Jan Barry and Barbara Williams, who headlined the Toxic Legacy series, are also interviewed, both of them appealing in their determination to get the story out. Williams quotes Henry Ford Jr., who in 1955 at the Mawa plant dedication said, This plant will provide a substantial lasting contribution to the living standards of all Americans. She then comments that the lasting contribution was the toxic waste. Between the advocacy of the Bergen Record journalists and the personal testimony of the residents, the film starts off strong and it draws in the viewer for a compelling case against Ford, so that by the time Vivian Milligan walks Vicki Gilliam through the community, indicating each house, the illnesses, and the deaths associated therein, one is hopeful that this sophisticated lawyer with the sudden draw will come through for the community. That was not to happen. So I have to ask you, Jan, when you saw this video and it started off strong. Oh, the first half is great, really. Yeah. Don't you think, Jan, that the film starts off with a good punch? Yep. So... What happened? Who who do you think pulled the plug on on making it all it could have been? Well, Ford has mysterious ways. <laughs> <laughs> what I was struck by is before the documentary was even probably thought of, all kinds of law groups showed up and said this was going to be the environmental case of the whatever, the nation. And they all, one by one, settled on this fairly inexperienced young woman lawyer as their lead. Mm-hmm. What happened to Robert Kennedy Jr., who did a press conference up there, and his partner, who seemed to 
be a little bit more experienced. As you see in the film, there's quite a number of older, seemingly more experienced attorneys who are not the lead attorney. They come and go. And so there was this mystery as to why they settled the Cochran firm. Johnny wasn't there himself. This you know, young woman is there. And, um, and, then, and then she disappears. Well, quite clearly, a settlement. That judge, as you can see in a film clip there, made it impossible for there to be a real trial. Oh, we talk about the mechanics of what he did in a later episode. So they had to, yep. they had to come up with a settlement. Same thing happened with veterans who sued regarding Agent Orange. One ju- federal judge in Brooklyn took all cases into his courtroom and basically said, settle it out of court. Well, then what are you going to do? And then the economy took a dip. Well, Ford used that opportunity to get rumors out that they might even, you know, economically go down the tubes. You better get whatever you can get while you can get it. And the difficulty, particularly for Barbara Williams, was trying to stay in touch with everybody to find out, okay, what was the settlement about? What was in the settlement? And then... Some people got more and some people got less. None of it was enough to even cover one person's ongoing serious cancer health treatment. And they allowed for non-disclosure too. So they, they were told, don't talk about yeah, this. Yeah, don't talk about this. So there were, it left a lot of resentments amongst the people in the community. And there were resentments already. You know, the impression I had already gotten was people in... Mawa didn't really get along with people in Ringwood that much, uh, particularly leadership-wise, and that's why the, sometimes people were speaking to different issues. Here, Jan's re- referencing the, the different clans. The, turtle, the, different, turtle, the turtle, turtle clan as opposed to deer and, and, um, and wolf clan. And literally, and I, I know what you're saying, Jan, literally the turtle clan people who were the ones in Ringwood were told, do not talk about your case to the other two clans, they're not signed on to the case. And that's essentially saying, don't talk to your family members yeah. about what you're doing. So there was a wedge right. because of the mechanism that yep. the lawyers were working with. There was a wedge driven between family members. Do you, I mean, that sounds like it was by design. Quite likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every which way this community turned, somebody was trying to divide them this way and that way. The local police harassed them for generations. And at one point, I interviewed an old police chief because he had lived in the community. And his family had been part of the mining community, but he, he was not Ramapo, some other like Irish background or something like that. And it was the strangest interview. He wanted another reporter, and I drove him through Upper Ringwood and... He didn't really react to people like they were his old neighbors. Hmm. And then he starts telling the stories about how when so-and-so got drunk, he would get on his billy club and beat him over the head. I ended up looking at my notebook, and there was nothing there in terms of the paint sludge issue. Yeah. Whereas I could discover from old newspaper clippings and other documents that he must have been the police chief in the time frame in which the trucks were coming illegally to do the dumping. Yeah, and that's when the kickbacks were flowing in. It was so obvious because the paint sludge was dripping down the middle of the, of the roads to get to that place. 
you could follow the the paint in the road to where they were dumping it. You could just follow, it was a trail. Just blatant. Right. And you could also smell it when they came through because it was uh, full of acetone. I couldn't get anything out of him in terms of talking about that time frame. So I, <laughs> you could see the cover-up going on right there. Right. And he's an example in which I interviewed all kinds of people who you couldn't make use of the interview because they're hiding something. And that transferred into this film, the hiding, the cover-up and everything. You know, not blatantly, but you could see the results of the cover-up in the second half of the film. Mm-hmm. And then they had incredible moments in the film in which the people in the hazmat go inside and, and they're getting the dust out of people's attics, etc., and then in one of their restaurant meetings, this guy says, yeah, the dioxin levels are really high. That's Dahlgren. That's Dr. Dahlgren. And nothing yeah. more happens out of that. That, <laughs> yeah. to me, in and of itself, should have been pursued. One of the problems that I had with these lawyers, and I had this conversation with one of them, is, when do you take this to the attorney general? Yeah. Well, that's sure. not our job. Well, what was their job then, just to cite it? just to? Oh, well, you know, to get a piece of the settlement. Oh, God. And they did. Yeah. That's one of the great tragedies of the legalese. We, we, we have a, a structured system that benefits some over others. It just is. That's incredible. So at one point in our research, working with another reporter, we went down to Trenton to the DEP files, and they brought out stacks of boxes. They thought that this was just throw those guys for a loop. Well, this is early on in which digital cameras were coming into play. I brought one with me. And I just started taking pictures of pages. So I didn't want them to know what I was looking at because I figured it would disappear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in that process, at one point, we had asked for uh, an interview with the DEP commissioner of the time. And when we walk into his office, he throws something down on the table. He says, take a look at this. He had just requested criminal investigation through the of the for the U.S. attorney who happened to be Chris Christie f- at that time. Yeah, Ford and EPA. We go back to our newsroom and they didn't want to run it because they didn't want to tip off the New York Times that we were onto something. I said, "You got to run this thing; it'll be in the New York Times anyhow." Sure. But this guy just gave us something. You think he's going to just sit on and he's not going to tell anybody else in the news business? So they had this little tiny carefully worded story that in no way hinted that we were going to do some larger reporting. Because they didn't want to upset the attorney general. They didn't want to go in that direction. Oh, they also were worried that the New York Times or the Star-Ledger would swoop in and get the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) But if you sit on it, (laughs) then what's the point? So this was the other, other tension that I was up against. In normal circumstances... When something like that comes up, you make a big deal about what he just re- handed to you. Right. And and what was that exactly that he handed to you? What was in that document? It was a, re- it was a letter requesting a criminal investigation. Instead of being buried on page 16 or page 8 or wherever, it should have been front page headline. Sure, of course. And that was sent to Chris Christie at the time? Yeah. And, of course, he turns it down. Nothing happens. But if you'd put it on the front page, that would have also been leveraged to encourage him perhaps to not turn it down. Well, and the other tradition is that U.S. attorneys don't talk about their cases. And yet I knew that the reporter who covered federal government on an ongoing basis had 
people who constantly told them what was happening with various <laughs> cases. Wow. Yep. So we suddenly were up against editors who didn't really want to pursue a story that had been dropped in their laps. And then when we finally do the larger story, it's a side note. Man, oh, man. Yeah. That had to be incredibly frustrating. So nothing ever happened out of that request. And bit by bit, it all comes apart because, oh, you know, we have a new governor, and that DEP commissioner is out the window. Was this Governor Corzine at the time? I've lost track of Corzine was in the mix at one point. Yeah. Then Christie, you know, becomes the governor. Holy, holy yeah. moly. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen re regarding environmental issues in the state of New Jersey. And he wouldn't have become governor, I feel, if they had the record and the larger news media had pursued the fact that he was sitting on a request for a criminal investigation of Ford that he did nothing with. And, you know, the amazing thing about that is, okay, so we'll, we'll call it what it is. He's a white guy answering to other white guys, so he's going to ignore a, a little patch of Indians living up there in the crutch of the mountains, except that that watershed pours directly down into the Wanakue Reservoir. So if not for the Ramapo Turtle Clan, how about for the massive number of white, well-heeled users of the Wanakue Reservoir? It's ultimately going to affect them too. But apparently he felt not in his lifetime. He felt the migration of the material, even if he understands those words, was so slow that it's not going to directly affect his core constituency. And yeah. that's that's the problem with the political machinery that we have in, in charge of our environment. And you have a large blue-collar uh, population in, in Wanakue, in that region. Mm -hmm. You've got the uh, Passaic County Community College has a branch there. Mm -hmm. um, and so all the – and that's the thing, too, is that this doesn't go away. It, it, no. it just doesn't go away. It, and and the, the effects of – this on human beings, I think they're still learning new things that, that are happening to people because of it. Well, as an example, at the time, I was perfectly healthy. I took some precautions, but I didn't really know enough of what I was dealing with to maybe be wearing uh, rubber gloves. I shouldn't have taken a piece of this stuff and put it on my desk in the newsroom until someone said to me, put that thing into a paper bag and stick your snout into the paper bag and take a whiff. And you you got a good whiff of the off-gassing. Yeah. Well, no one previously, this was not somebody with the EPA or the DEP, probably an academic person who does some environmental um, research. At any rate, I didn't really worry about my interaction with this stuff other than just be sort of careful. And it may have added to my load. Sure. You don't know. They don't know. But all of a sudden, you know, 2000, my, my health just started falling apart. Yeah. And the end result was I had to go to PT to relearn how to walk, as an example. Good God. And bit by bit, I'm able to piece together, and fortunately this is what's happening with the VA, I have something called Parkinsonism, which apparently only hits Vietnam veterans in their late 70s from Agent Orange. And think about when the exposure, Joe, again, think about the exposure to Agent Orange was how many decades ago? 
Right. And yeah. this is this is what you're saying here, Jan, yeah. is so important because this is a big piece of the problem with getting compensation for claims about environmental contamination yeah. in a human being. Right. It can take decades. Sixty years. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. in my particular situation, it just happened that this is a couple of years ago. They added to the Agent Orange list of approved diseases something called Parkinsonism, which as I'm experiencing all these problems, I'm looking at, oh, what the hell is that? I'll look it up. It described exactly what I was dealing with, which told me instantly they already have so many cases amongst Vietnam veterans of my age group. Mm-hmm. They gave a name to it. Yep, yep. It's so new that recently when I went to the VA for a follow-up and saw a new, young neurologist who had no experiences apparently with Vietnam veterans, he said, you don't have Parkinsonism. Your hands aren't shaking. You don't have Parkinson's disease. I said, no, it's not Parkinson's disease. It's Parkinsonism. What? What are you talking about? He works at the VA. And you need to tell him. And he didn't know. Yeah. Well, this is the other frustration. It's beyond frustration. It's a four-letter word. Yeah. That veterans deal with all the time to go to the place that's designed to help you. And no matter what your problem is, I've been telling my generation, it was caused by your mother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my wow. mother gave me lead poisoning from, you know, too many bullets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever it was. Whatever right. your problem was. Right. It was your mom. It was your mom. You inherited this. You Don't inherited. bring it to us. So there was no PTSD originally. It had no name because it was caused by your mother. Jesus. Uh, so I was used to having to ferret out things of this sort. And I became a, I finally decided I wanted to be a municipal newspaper reporter because I could help explain things to people. Mm-hmm. Whatever came along, I would try to explain to people what it's about. And what I really loved, I'd be in one small town, and people would just be waving the newspaper and saying, you see what's in the record about our neighboring town? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. You sure did. You put it there. <laughs> you know, you cannot activate against something you don't understand. And nope. so describing it in words and in ways that people do understand is so Vital. Once again, we come to the this the absolute vital nature of, of uh, local news mm-hmm. and how important. I mean, I saw Axios was trying to do something where you know they were trying to bring back local reporting uh, and and you know put it into their their digital funnel. Yeah, one of the things that they do is they communicate with local papers around the country, and they'll run their their headline and their byline in an effort to boost their circulation, but also to illustrate this is where stories come from. This is where they're true. Yeah. It's, it's a hard it's a Where hard things lift. happen. It's a hard lift, but it's a, so important. Well, Shall at the we, moment, uh, ProPublica oh, is doing the yes. heavy lifting of the investigative stuff and then trying to find the larger news world to carry what they have just come up with. But there again, you know, ProPublica you know, breaks the story about Justice Thomas and... Nothing happens. We have a a justice on the Supreme Court who is, you know, really committing felonious activities. I mean, th- this is terrible stuff. Yeah, taking money from donors, you know, and I think so is Gorsuch. This would have never so happened in the past, though. I mean, we've really fallen down here. Yeah, but they, but even when they reveal it. We're so That's out the of, part that never would have happened. They'd yeah. reveal it in the past. And they'd say, okay, now we got to get ourselves back on the rails. We're not really saying that right now. 
we're not saying anything. They're not even they're not even talking about an ethics, you know, guidelines for for the Supreme Court. Nothing. Uh, let's I, let's uh, let's end on an up yeah, note. Yeah, let's end the up note. Okay. Okay. Is going to be thanks to folks like Jan Barry, Barbara Williams, folks like Bob Spiegelman, and my old friend Jeff Welch, and all the citizen science folks, folks who are not being paid to do the activism, but they have done the activism for years and years and years. Even if they've quit, they've gotten it started, they get the ball rolling, whatever piece you're doing. And that helps develop the momentum in the other direction. And we will get to that eventually too in these episodes. A good way to end this one. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We can sleep a little bit after this one. Maybe, maybe. All right. With that, we will say farewell until next week. Thanks so much for being with us and for being a part of Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845 522 9652 the com, your hometown used bookstore you're gonna love this place you